Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the growing outrage over the police mishandling of the latest gun massacre at the elementary school in Texas and assess whether Senate deliberations initiated by Senator Murphy might yield some new gun laws that failed to pass after the Sandy Hook school shooting 10 years ago. Joining us is Patrick Blanchfield, a journalist and faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His writing on gun violence, mass shootings and the politics of gun control have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Foreign Policy, Book Forum, Dissent, N Plus One and elsewhere. And his forthcoming book is Gun Power, The Structure of American Violence. With the Supreme Court poised to strike down New York's laws restricting guns, we'll examine the 2005 2005 Supreme Court case in which Antonin Scalia ruled against a woman whose husband had violated a protective order and killed her three children, ruling that police have no duty to protect the public unless they have specifically promised to do so in writing. Then we'll discuss how we are at an inflection point in the war in Ukraine now that the Biden administration has decided not to send the MLRS and HIMARS offensive weapon systems to Ukraine and speak with Nicholas Harris, Deputy Director of the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute and the former Middle East Security Program Manager at the Institute for the Study of War where he was Director of Government Relations responsible for Russia and Eurasia. From 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Basevich, Jr., USA Fellow at the Center for New American Security. Then finally, with the EU announcing they will block most Russian oil imports by the end of the year, we'll speak with Emma Ashford, a resident senior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. With expertise in the politics of the Middle East, Russia and Europe, her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security and the future of U.S. foreign policy. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Oil, the State and War, The Foreign Policies of Petrostates, and we will discuss her op-ed at Bloomberg, NATO Should Think Twice Before Accepting Finland and Sweden. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Patrick Blanchfield, who is a journalist and faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His writing on gun violence, mass shootings, and the politics of gun control have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Foreign Policy, Book Forum, Dissent, N Plus One, and elsewhere. His forthcoming book is Gun Power, The Structure of American Violence. Welcome to Background Briefing, Patrick Blanchfield. Thank you so much, Ian. It's really good to, to be back, and it's a pleasure to talk, albeit, you know, pleasure is qualified given the proximate circumstances. So do you think that something will finally happen? Obviously, 
President Obama made a considerable effort after the hideous Sandy Hook mass shooting of 20 children and six adults. It looked as if something would happen, but they were in the Senate. They only got 57 votes, three short of the 60 threshold required by the filibuster. So nothing happened, and clearly Obama was furious and upset. In fact, he broke into tears when he was talking about his frustration. So now we have the Biden administration and a similar incident in Uvalde, children blown away by assault rifles. And it looks as if something may happen. Chris Murphy's leading an effort, Senator from Connecticut, but McConnell seems to be cooperating. He pulled back Cornyn, who was supposed to go to the NRA meeting, and brought him in, and they're negotiating something. What do you think will come out of this at the end of the day, if anything at all? You know, I, I, I truth be told, I don't know. I have some suspicions, right? And, and I think both for my own purposes and for our purposes and for the purposes of anyone listening, it's helpful to disambiguate between timelines of like expectations and also to just kind of have a an open mind vis-a-vis processes of causality, right? I think one of the things, one of the recurrent themes of the way mass shootings in schools particularly impact and register on the American public consciousness and on political discourse and then potentially subsequently on legislation is that there is a, a palpable outrage mixed with a kind of expectation that, well, this is going to be the one that changes something or everything. And it's it's very understandable. And, and I think part of what's tragic about mass shootings in particular and gun violence in general is that there's always a desire for an event to produce a cause and a consequence that is as emotionally satisfying or that a change that you can like feel as the event itself made you feel terrible and was traumatic. So with an eye towards like those disambiguations, right? And because I do think things do change, but they don't necessarily happen directly. Uh, It's worth saying that, you know, there have after, for example, Sandy Hook, there wasn't massive federal action on gun control. However, states and municipalities uh, did pursue a whole suite of uh, gun regulatory measures and then face pushback from the courts on that. Uh, And also activist groups crystallized around that. After Parkland, uh, there was again an an expectation, well, this must be, you know, these victims are so innocent. We know this song before. This This is such a horrible thing. There must be consequences. And there were municipal and state consequences, because that's where most of the action is happening. But more than anything else, what emerged from that was a new coalition of activists, some of them tied to the old gun control movements, which are, you know, liberal and generally tied to certain apparatuses of policing and kind of professional activist types, alongside grassroots, uh, multi-ethnic, multiracial, openly LGBTQ activists, like a next generation of activists. And we have yet to fully see what that might accomplish, right? But that that already is a, is a thing. Uh, with this event, there is also, with, with uh, Buffalo and Uvalde, back to back, right? You have these two horrifying events. And I think looking at the responses to each of them separately implicates and probably dams a lot about, you know, who gets considered more exemplarily innocent, et cetera. And and we could go down that direction if we want. But there definitely is a palpable sense, I can feel it, 
that something needs to be done. And as in some of those previous circumstances in 2012 and 2018, et cetera, you can sense some movement from various political figures sort of triaging PR things. You have some right wingers even, you know, in various states turning in their ARs, et cetera. The question about like what will come from this specifically thus is something that we can think about in relation to those passive events and then in relation to like what's on the table immediately speaking and also what's sort of shifted in terms of what's imaginable more broadly, right? Like more broad or like multi-causal thing. And I think that it's there that with there's opportunity, there's room for both hope and new possibility, but also I think some traps and, and to get into that, I think we should say, we should, we should say it with just upfront that part of what makes the Uvalde uh, situation so unique, right? Um, even though it bears strong resemblances to Sandy Hook and some other things, much as Buffalo bears resemblance to, you know, El Paso and other massacres, uh, is the striking inaction and what some might call incompetence or other might, uh, or others might call um, fidelity to purpose of the police involved, right? And so one thing that has happened in response to this event that was not necessarily present in those other events, even though there were police who failed to engage or were unable to engage or ran away in some cases, is that public outrage has crystallized not just around assault weapons or uh, the, the, the laws that allowed the young shooter to get it, but also the apparent inability of the police to do anything, or even one could say the desire of the police to put their own safety and well-being uh, ahead of anything else, and perhaps even to, instead of going to protect children, choosing instead to assault parents of children who were desperate. So one consequence there is that we could see potentially a turn to consideration of how police play into gun control discourse and gun control policies. And that could be very interesting. Now, there's a tension there, though, too, because a lot of what's traditionally been the vector for major federal uh, gun control legislation, as in the 90s, following massacres in 94, or or even following, you know, abortive attempts post Sandy Hook or Partland, is a turn to ban assault weapons, but always a ban of assault weapons combined with additional support for police. So there is a tension here, right? Like on the one hand, it's become clear that the the police as an institution don't actually seem equipped to deal with gun violence, and in fact produce a great deal of gun violence themselves. But also it seems like the, the top-down, not necessarily grassroots impulse and the channel, the precedent that's been previously sort of established and through which contemporary energies flow is to ban assault weapons and to get tough on crime. And of course, if we're gonna ban assault weapons, what that means is that we need police with assault weapons to you know, collect those assault weapons. And also historically speaking, whenever there's been an assault weapons ban or a gun ban like that, that generally also means the police wind up, you know, uh, arresting disproportionate numbers of young people who look a lot like the kids who were themselves dead in Uvalde. So that, in, in brief response to what your question is, like, I think some new terms have been put in play, but how those terms are negotiated and whether or not this is a strict repetition of the past or a repetition of the past with variation is still to be seen. And again, I'm speaking with Patrick Blanchfield, who's a journalist and a faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. He's writing on gun violence, mass shootings, and the politics of gun control, have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Foreign Policy Book Forum, Dissent, N Plus One, and elsewhere. And his forthcoming book is Gun Power, The Structure of American Violence. So 
when you mentioned the courts, of course, it's true that the police, there should be a, a real rethinking about reliance on the police to do their duty when these people uh, were acting cowardly and harassing parents instead of rescuing children. And on top of that, of course, the federal government transfers massive amounts of military equipment to these uh, police forces, which they, they certainly didn't seem to be um, ready to do what the military does, which is actually charge into a battle as opposed to run from it. But there is, of course, a Supreme Court precedent in the 2005 case Town of Castle Rock versus Gonzalez, a case in which a woman sued the local police department for failing to arrest her husband, who had violated a protective order, resulting in the murder of her three children. And in the opinion written by Justice Antonin Scalia, the Supreme Court ruled against her, holding that the police have no duty to protect the public unless they have specifically promised to in writing. So go figure. Yeah, I think I actually really appreciate your bringing that up. And I because like that's the and, and I think that this is one of those points that it, it, you have to struggle against a lot of what is just sort of given and unquestioned in our culture to really um hold this thought in your mind for an extended period of time. And then an event like this comes around, which really, really uh, throws it into sharp relief. And you have to resist kind of, you know, impulse to be like, well, these these were uniquely cowardly police or they didn't follow proper procedure or they made this mistake or this mistake or that mistake. But like the thing that is so hard to keep in mind, but which a ruling like that emphasizes uh, and which the display of the Avalde police recently structure, you know, symbol like brings into harsh relief is that it's not the job of police to protect vulnerable people. It just isn't. It never has been, right? Sure, people in distress can call the police, and oftentimes if those people are white and have money or are lucky, the police will go, will show up and vindicate their interests. But when it comes to situations where, I don't know, and this is a regular feature of American news headlines, families will call police against the context, against the backdrop of, you know, living in communities where social services have been cut and more money has been given to police instead. But when families call the police saying, you know, my son or my, my daughter is having a acute mental health crisis, or my, my, my brother or my husband is, or my daughter, there are a non, there's a non-trivial and in fact, very likely possibility that the police will call, show up and they'll just kill that person because they feel in threat of their lives. Similarly, there have been a lot of people who call the police saying, I'm feeling suicidal, or someone I love is feeling suicidal, or this home, this person who is unhoused is on the street, and they look like they're going to hurt themselves. And what do the police do? Well, they arrive, they very quickly pull out their guns, they start screaming that they're going to shoot someone, and of course, if this person is, you know, having a psychotic episode, or uh, in the grip of a drug addiction, or is just mentally distressed, it's very likely, it's very unlikely that they're going to suddenly get very cool and rational, particularly when a bunch of jackboots are waving guns in their faces and screaming about how they're going to put you down like a dog, uh, and they just kill that person. So we're in a country where the police basically seem to not to be so much about protecting people as about protecting themselves, not so much about like preserving a just social order, but just imposing order in terms of very brutal control wherever they are, and to view anything that comes between them and that as not only oftentimes like a problem, even if, if these are the people asking them for help, but as an existential threat, as a threat to their ability to maintain control. And given a situation, and I think we saw this in Uvalde, right? Instead of like trying to deal with the children who were being killed, 
they either, uh, you know, hung out outside. Or, and, and by the way, I think there's who knows what's being covered up, right? I would love to hear more people ask questions about exactly, you know, how many police fired into the building? Were they aware that there were children bleeding out in that classroom? Did they choose to leave the shooter confined in that classroom, no matter what he might do? Because that would be easier to sort of bottleneck him. They say they didn't know that they were that there were kids still alive, but they were still getting 911 calls and hearing gunshots. So you have to wonder, were they sitting around like with every single gunshot being like, oh, now all the kids are dead. And then bang, no, now they're dead, definitely. They just sat there. But what they did do, Instead of risking their lives, which they are paid to do, and they get a pension, and they get a union, they get all these things that Americans don't, and they also get a cult of worship in the mode of Blue Lives Matter, is they found someone who seemed to be upsetting their control, someone who was right there and was begging them to do what they thought were their jobs, and who presented the spectacle of maybe going in to do that jobs themselves, namely rest parents who wanted to rescue their own children who didn't understand why the police were doing nothing and who were horrified as they listened to their children die and the police would later say that they had no idea what was going on. And what did the police do? They beat them. They tased them. They put them in cups. Desperate parents were being beaten by police while their children were being murdered and the police did nothing. And what I would like people to understand and what I think this evidence, this episode clarifies, what that court case also supports, and what so much of this sort of crypto-fascist or outright fascist Blue Lives Matter rhetoric telegraphs is not that like police lives are special because they protect people, but that police lives are more important than anyone else's lives. That police don't exist to protect people. Police exist to show up and impose control at gunpoint with nightsticks, and that has nothing to do whatsoever with protecting the vulnerable. And I think to whatever extent a lot of the, our discourse about policing and our discourse about crime, like our discourse about gun control, hinges upon this appeal, this, this storied idea that's not just a conservative idea, but a liberal one too, that there are good guys with guns and we just need to get more guns to the good guys with guns to deal with the bad guys with guns. And that idea of the good guy with a gun is exemplarily a police officer, that that's a fantasy and it's bankrupt. And I'll say one more thing about this. When it comes to assault weapons bans, when it comes to bans against police, uh, against domestic abusers having access to firearms, when it comes to laws that might take away guns from domestic abusers, not only just preventing them from buying them, but taking them away from them, police regularly and police unions regularly oppose those laws. And you might ask why? Well, you know, if police are supposed to protect victims of domestic abuse or children who are shot by guns at a great rate in America's homes, along with women and others. Why are, why are they opposing this? And the answer is, is because the police, as demographically speaking, are vastly more likely to be domestic abusers themselves. And if they were to have to enforce that law, well, either they wouldn't enforce it or they'd find themselves in the position of taking away guns from their colleagues. And those colleagues would no longer be able to do their jobs, no longer be able to get uh, overtime for doing rent-a-cop jobs, and otherwise would be unable to participate in this sort of charade of an institution which supposedly exists to protect people, but which is ultimately, at the end of the day, about protecting itself, no matter how many children they actively kill or let die. So in the last minute then, Patrick, 
I mentioned uh, the Supreme Court decision by uh, written by Antonin Scalia that ruled that the police have no duty to protect the public unless they have specifically promised to do so in writing. Scalia, of course, is the person responsible for the Heller decision that turned the Second Amendment on its head, where the predicate, the state shall have well-regulated militias being necessary for the security of a free state, and the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. He turned that around to make the second part the important part, not the predicate, and we are neither secure nor free in this country, because you can't go to churches or or synagogues or malls or schools anymore without the threat of being murdered by assault rifles. So he's the guy responsible, in ways, for all these damn guns. And his clones are now the majority on the Supreme Court. Yeah, and I think I think we should look at what a tidy trap that is, right? And the, that has been left for us. Because in, in Heller, Scalia basically says that the, rather than being tethered to some sort of militia apparatus, the individual has a let's call it sovereign right to bear arms for self-defense. And perhaps we could say, like, okay, look, if the police aren't here to protect us, let's arm ourselves to protect ourselves when the police won't. But as we have seen, time. And time again, whether in Minneapolis or um, in in Ferguson or in a great many places, having a gun legally and declaring it safely to a police officer, particularly if you're a person of color, exercising that right for self-defense and saying, doctor, officer, I want to show you my paperwork, can very often be a quick ticket to their emptying a magazine in you. So once again, people are supposedly now empowered to protect themselves and police are out there to protect themselves because their lives matter more. Those collisions consistently result in outcomes where people get shot, where civilians get shot, civilians who are just trying to do the right thing one way or another by their own judgment. And the police are more often than not immunized and face no consequences. It's not just that their lives supposedly matter, their lives matter more. And they will protect that prerogative, whether that means beating parents or shooting legal concealed carriers. Well, Patrick Blanchfield, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Totally. Thank you. Have a good one. Take care. All right. And again, I've been speaking with Patrick Blanchfield, who's a journalist and faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His writing on gun violence, mass shootings, and the politics of gun control have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Foreign Policy, Book Forum, Dissent, N Plus One, and elsewhere. And his forthcoming book is Gun Power, The Structure of American Violence. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing how we are at an inflection point in the war in Ukraine now that the Biden administration has decided not to send the MLRS and HIMARS offensive weapon systems to Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Nicholas Harris, who's the Deputy Director of the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute and a former Middle East Security Program Manager at the Institute for the Study of War, where he was also Director of Government Relations responsible for Russia and Eurasia. And from 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Vashevich, Jr. USA Fellow at the Center for New American Security. And he's the author of From the Bottom Up, a strategy for U.S. military support for Syria's armed oppositions. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nicholas Harris. Thank you for having me today, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And you have been studying the war in Ukraine, and the U.S. has always seemed to be somewhat cautious about supplying weaponry. Initially, they wouldn't they're against the transfer of the MiG-29s from Poland. They seem to be slow. The Germans, of course, have even been slower. And now the United States, the Biden administration, has decided not to send the MLRS uh, system, the multiple launch rocket system, which apparently the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan argued was provocative, whereas Secretary of State Blinken was in favor of sending the weapon system to the Ukrainians, which, of course, they've asked for. Has there been a detectable reluctance on the part of the United States to really provide the Ukrainians with, with what they've been asking for all along since uh, Russia invaded back in February the 24th? So this is a key uh, inflection point, Ian, in sort of the U.S. approach to responding to Russia's campaign in Ukraine since February 24th. And, you know, there's this sense here in Washington, D.C., that although there is deep bipartisan commitment for supporting uh, Ukraine's defense of its territory against Russian aggression, there is now beginning to be a more sort of intense behind-the-scenes discussion which we're beginning to now see from the Biden administration's back and forth on the provision of the multiple launch rocket system or potentially a similar system, the high mobility artillery rocket system or HIMARS to the Ukrainians. And essentially, this debate centers around, okay, what is the objective of the Ukrainians now at this point in the conflict? Um, we have seen essentially the Russians sort of abandon a maximal approach to try to conquer Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, and force the Zelensky government out of power and instead consolidate Russian uh, goals to try and seize as much territory as possible in eastern and southern Ukraine. And in particular, in eastern Ukraine, in uh, the region of Donbass, where the two breakaway republics in Donetsk and Lugansk happen to be located. And the, the the controversy, if you will, within the Biden team over the provision of these rocket systems isn't so much about the rocket systems, it's about the munitions. What type of rockets do you give to the Ukrainians? Um, and the reason for that is that the rockets that you give will determine the signal that you send the Russians. The Russians have made it very clear. If the United States provides rockets that can fire 150 or more miles, uh, that will be considered a threat by Russia because the Ukrainians could then hit Russian territory. Whereas 
rockets with uh, shorter range, maybe 20 to 50 miles, will be considered less of a threat. And this whole debate centers around this central question, which is, what is the goal for the Ukrainians now? Is it to force the Russians back from territory that had been conquered um, since February 24th? Or is it to launch a wider war to take back all territory that Russia has seized from Ukraine since 2014? And at this point, the Ukrainians, of course, are not suggesting anything along the lines of compromise, are they? I mean, Zelensky was very outraged by Kissinger's remarks at Davos recently, where he suggested that they should give up territory in order to make a peace deal with Russia. And Zelensky made the point that, you know, is Kissinger back in 1938 when him and his family fled Nazi Germany for their lives? At that point, would he have would he have made a deal with Hitler back then? I mean, the country's being destroyed, and I think the Ukrainians, uh, uh, <laughs> they're, they're feeling pretty angry, aren't they? Well, there's widespread... Um sort of discontent uh, within sort of the relationship between Ukraine and NATO and European countries. And the Ukrainians have received significant financial as well as military support from many European countries, from the United States. Um, The challenge, though, moving forward is that as this war settles into this grinding artillery, you know, dependent conflict in eastern Ukraine, the Russians can seem to sustain heavier losses as well as can bring more force to bear than the Ukrainians can. And what we're starting to see now internationally is the bite from this war on the international economy, on uh, in global food scarcity, on supply chains. Um, the energy dynamics of the conflict are making it very complicated for a number of different global actors. And you're also beginning to see, as, although there's been you know, attempts at European unity, you're also beginning to see some of the differences in the approaches amongst different European actors. You have some countries, such as France, for example, which are saying to Ukrainians, look, you have to get a deal. And we know that while they don't like Putin and they don't want Russia to succeed, so to speak, uh, there is this sort of, and this, this is reflected, what we talked about here in Washington, D.C., in the, okay, what is reasonable? You know, the Ukrainians have resisted bravely. They've resisted fiercely. We will continue to support them in their resistance. We don't want them to have to cede territory to the Russians. But what happens if it's not possible, except for a major escalation against Russia, to recapture territory that has been conquered by the Russians since February 24th? And if the Ukrainian objective is to try to seize on international sympathy and what seems to be momentum within the U.S. administration to create a maximal end-state goal, you know, along the lines of possibly taking back all the territory that Russia has seized from Ukraine since 2014, which could also mean Crimea, 
which has become a, a part of Russia through Russian action, what does that then therefore mean for broader geopolitical stability? And at this point in time, Putin and his regime do not seem to want to back down, that they seem to want, at the very least, to conquer as much territory as possible in eastern and southern Ukraine and to attach that territory for all intents and purposes to Russia, to the Russian Federation, and you know, damn the consequences, so to speak. Whereas the Ukrainians under Zelensky, it now seems that Zelensky is pushing towards a type of maximum objective of his own, which although might not necessarily lead to the full uh, capture of territory that had been taken from Ukraine by Russia since 2014, would create the conditions to reverse all those gains. And this is where you begin to see this sort of lingering question of, okay, how far is the United States, how far is Europe, and how far is the international community willing to go um, to realize the Zelensky administration, Ukraine's objectives? Because that, I think, is going to determine a lot of what follows. And this debate within the Biden administration about rocket systems reflects that. And again, I'm speaking with Nicholas Harris, who's the Deputy Director of the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute and the former Middle East Security Program Manager at the Institute for the Study of War, where he's Director of Government Relations, responsible for Russia and Eurasia. And from 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Basevich, Jr., USA Fellow at the Center for a New American Security. So, I mean, this rocket system, the HIMARS and the, and the MLRS, they're not going to turn the tide on their own. Is there is there anything else that could do it along? Or I mean, is it realistic that weaponry will do it? Given that you just pointed out, the Russians have got more resources. You know, you've got 150 million population in Russia and a 44 million population in Ukraine. So even if they're having a hard time recruiting soldiers, and now they're having to turn to the urban centers for recruits like St. Petersburg and Moscow, where the young Russians are not going to be too thrilled. They've been basically getting kids from the countryside who are very poor and easily recruited uh, on promises, which, of course, the corrupt <laughs> nature of the Russian military means that they're, they're all getting screwed, and, and now they're having to steal what they can in, what, inside of Ukraine. There's a picture today of a a Russian tank with a, you know, a household boiler, water boiler on the strap to the top of it, and apparently some Ukrainian woman yelled out, "That's my boiler on top of your tank." Mm. So this is what's happening there. It's a, the Russian military are looking pretty disgusting, frankly. That they're not very good at fighting Ukrainian soldiers, but they're awfully good at killing. Elderly people, women and children, blowing up buildings, homes, attacking, you know, raping women, looting, stealing, etc. It's a pretty grim picture. But as you point out, they could, they can go a lot longer than the Ukrainians, and that's the equation, right? So these rocket systems, their immediate impact, or assessed immediate impact, would they would allow the Ukrainians? even with the shorter range munitions to strike into the rear areas of where the Russians are located in Ukraine, which would have significant disruptions in the Russians ability, even beyond what they have now, the major disruptions that the Russians have 
to sort of wage this ongoing campaign in eastern Ukraine and would extend the war, put more pressure on the Russian military, perhaps force the Russians to go and take steps such as uh, mobilizing citizens, uh, drafting citizens, declaring the war as a war and not as a special military operation, all of which could have longer-term effects on the stability of Russia and the ability for Putin and his regime to continue to manage the country. And so there are some immediate potential benefits to Ukrainian military in that sense. Um, you know, there are also the also the reality is that much of the argument for providing these rocket systems, uh, which in the set, which would be an escalation of the type of technology provided to the Ukrainians, is it would also sort of further draw the Ukrainians in to logistical supply lines controlled by the United States, because to to provide these weapon systems, the U.S. has to also provide munitions for them to the Ukrainians, which means there's another way that the United States is for all intents and purposes drawn into the war against Russia and Ukraine. And fundamentally, the question becomes one of how much time can you buy the Ukrainians? The meta strategy that the United States and its partners and allies has adopted fundamentally is that if you can't defeat Russia immediately on the battlefield, and the Russians have shown um, adaptability after their initial uh, goals were not met, you know, seizing Kiev, you know, forcibly deposing the Zelensky government, being forced to withdraw from most of the north of the of Ukraine, having to reconsolidate their approach in the east, in eastern Ukraine. The Russians have shown adaptability, and the Russians have also been able to mass artillery. They're using artillery to to power their offensive in eastern Ukraine, in particular. Um, and so these rocket systems that the U.S. could provide would would allow the Ukrainians to offset that and feed, would feed into the broader strategy that the United States is taking, which is to, to make the cost so high for Russia for continuing the war that at one point Putin, in order for his own survival politically and probably ex- physically, <laughs> would have to stop the war. And so these systems could build into that strategy. But what does that strategy mean? That strategy means that the Russians sort of, you know, double down or could just continue undeterred and turn this into a grinding slug fest. Then that could have severe consequences, not only for the Ukrainians, but also for the broader European and global uh, stability. And so that's why this is an inflection point right now, because, you know, what U.S. indicates in its arms transfers isn't just the systems themselves, the logistical tail back to the United States, which means that the United States is more invested in the war. If the United States is more invested in this war, that means the war can drag on. If the Russians want to demonstrate similar commitment, then we could be looking at a multi-year conflict in which the United States is deeply intertwined into an existential question for the future of Europe and the broader geopolitics of the global order. So does that mean that the Biden administration then, Nicholas Harris, has decided not to help Ukraine inflict a higher cost on the Russians, but rather to allow the Russians to gain more territory in the hope that what? I mean, why is there any belief 
that Putin would accept any deal because the Ukrainians believe that if, he, if there was a ceasefire and some kind of peace negotiation, Putin would only use that as a way to rearm and get ready for the next offensive. So is this a faith-based decision that's being made here? Well, that's why the debate, you know, a lot of this debate, uh, it may seem, you know, it may seem very technical, but it really is a technical debate, right? The debate over what type of munitions to provide. I, I think the rocket systems themselves will be provided. Uh, the number of them uh, that would be provided is still probably a question that the Pentagon has to answer. Um, the fundamental question, though, is what type of munitions? If they're shorter range munitions, then the United States can continue to say, look, these are provided in the good faith of supporting Ukrainians. We've made this very clear from day one uh, that we will defend, we will help the Ukrainians defend themselves. When you start to get into the longer range munitions and even the sort of the ballistic missiles that can be fired from these rocket systems, then it becomes a question of, okay, are you allowing, will you then allow the Ukrainians to create a new step in the escalation ladder, which is the ability to say credibly to the Russians, we have accurate strike capability against hardened targets inside Russia itself. You have spent so much time attacking our infrastructure, attacking our economy, blockading us, all these things, but we can do this unto you as well. And it be, what it becomes, Ian, essentially what we're watching in real time is a negotiation between the Biden administration, the United States, and the Russians as to when have we reached the highest run in the escalation ladder before the Russians begin to bring in certain other types of capabilities, whether they're nuclear or cyber, that dramatically affect human security in Ukraine, Eastern Europe, and the global order. And so this is where we're at right now. This is why there's an inflection point, because we are watching in a very technical manner in real time, a negotiation between President Biden and Putin over the escalation ladder that the United States and the Russians will follow in Ukraine. And we don't know where the last run on that ladder will be before the Russians send signals, probably quietly and very bluntly to the United States that this is it. There's no higher, there is no higher run in this ladder that you can go. It's at that point, Ian, that we will begin to really know at what, how far the Ukrainians can try to create a better political reality at the end of this conflict for themselves and for the Zelensky government. But just in closing, if the White House refuses to send these systems, which is the signal today, will the Russians respond in the way that's the opposite to saying that, you know, <laughs> that we're going to escalate? And you've gone over a red line. In other words, will they start suing for peace if the U.S. signals that it doesn't want to escalate? Well, that's been the devil's dilemma since day one, is that every time there's been an attempt to create a reasonable diplomatic solution to this war of choice launched by Russia, uh, the Russians have spurred it and have continued and have tried to adapt, to seize their aims. And so this is why there's such a fierce debate in the administration and also here in Washington and also in Europe, because there is a growing sense that although 
there's no desire for a, a larger and wider war with Russia, at the end of the day, if the Russians are going to continue and continue and continue, at what point does it stop? And this does have the moment, this does have the feel in of a point of no return, that as we start to go into heavier weapon systems with longer ranges and greater ability for the Ukrainians to begin to exact the toll inside, potentially exact the toll inside Russia, that where this ends is anyone's guess. Well, Nicholas Harris, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian, as always. And again, I've been speaking with Nicholas Harris, who's the Deputy Director of the Human Security Unit of the New Lines Institute and the former Middle East Security Program Manager at the Institute for the Study of War, where he was Director of Government Relations responsible for Russia and Eurasia. And from 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Basevich, Jr. USA Fellow at the Center for New American Security. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the EU's announcement that they will block most Russian oil imports by the end of the year. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Emma Ashford, a resident senior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. With expertise in the politics of the Middle East, Russia, Europe, her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. And she's the author of the forthcoming book, Oil, the State, and War, The Foreign Policies of Petrostates. And she has an op-ed at Bloomberg, NATO should think twice before accepting Finland and Sweden. Welcome to Background Briefing, Emma Ashford. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I obviously want to talk to you about Finland and Sweden joining NATO, but let's just start with oil, <laughs> the subject of your forthcoming book. On the one hand, you have most people assuming, or most people observing uh, that the Russian military has been hollowed out by corruption and has not been performing very well, uh, although now they're sort of intensifying their attacks in the east. But in general, there's a feeling that Putin is in big trouble. But on the other hand, economically, the price of oil has gone up enormously. It's now at $123 a barrel. He's in OPEC plus Putin along with MBZ and MBS of the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, and they're uh, making out enormously well. There's a possibility of a global recession. India is buying more Russian oil than ever, at least a billion a day, and uh, they're also getting more oil to China. So let's start with that. How do you balance it out? The failures on the military front in Ukraine vis-a-vis the fact that uh, Putin seems to be doing okay economically in spite of the sanctions. 
So one of the things that I actually talk about in the book, which which was written long before this crisis happened, but it's the fact that petrostates like Russia um, are, are insulated from mistakes that they make. So they um, are typically very wealthy. Um, they get a lot of income from oil and gas, and they can use that to do things like buy a lot of fancy military equipment. Um, that doesn't always mean their military is better, as, as we've seen over the last couple of months, um, but they can also use it in crises. And what we have seen with the Russian economy in the last couple of months is that Russia's status as a major oil and gas exporter is to a large extent extent, um, protecting it from the worst potential impacts of sanctions. Um, that's not to say the Russian economy is in a good place, because it's not, but it does appear that they're going to be able to take that oil income, particularly now that it's increased in price, um, and apply it to their domestic economy in a way that, that may help to keep the government secure, may help to keep the economy rolling. So in terms of what the EU announced today, that they they will block most of Russia's oil imports by the end of this year. And Poland and Germany together import 90% of Russian oil, and that's going to be blocked. So they're going to be blocking Russian oil that arrives by tanker, not by pipeline, largely because Hungary has been the spoiler and there's a pipeline that goes to Hungary. Now, one of the things that I've always been puzzled about, Emma, and maybe you can sort of <laughs> fill us in a little on this, why is it that most of the oil pipelines transit Ukraine. I don't know whether Ukraine's still getting its transfer fees from Russia, but these pipelines are way above ground. They're easy targets. They haven't been touched. I mean, the Ukrainians could essentially turn off the pipeline to Hungary. I'm not sure they want to do it, but they could. So what's it, what explains that, that nobody's touched the oil infrastructure? So it's uh, you've already sort of put your finger on it. It's not really in the interests of any party in this war to have that oil transit interrupted. Um, you're absolutely right. The Ukrainians could interfere with it if they wanted to. Um, they wouldn't even need to do anything particularly violent. You know, we they can siphon off oil or gas from pipelines at junction stations inside Ukraine. Um, but but it wouldn't be good for them to do so, right? They would not want to send that signal, I think, to the Western countries that are their biggest backers that are supplying, um, you know, much of their government funding and the weapons that they're using against Russia right now. And then obviously the Russians have no interest in doing so. Um, so we, we've been in a situation for a while now where if there was going to be that kind of disruption to pipelines in Ukraine, it would probably be accidental. It would be the, the fortunes of war and something blows up that you don't expect. And, and that would be the the case. Um, instead, what we're seeing is the European Union taking this, this very interesting choice to divest itself of Russian oil imports, um, which is a very, a very powerful signal, I think, um, but is probably not going to hurt Russia all that much economically. I think for Europe, this is much more about signaling that they don't intend to be reliant on Russian hydrocarbons going forward. So over the long run, they're going to suffer then in the short term, not much, even though 90% of their oil goes to Poland and, and Germany, and they're going to cut it off. And nobody's actually, from far as I can tell, been able to stop importing the gas, although Russia has turned off the gas in a number of European countries because they wanted payments in rubles. So, I mean, the object surely is for the Europeans to stop financing Putin's war machine. So how would you say that's going in the broader sense? 
Yeah, so my, my guess is that 90% statistic is probably 90% of Russian oil to Europe, because Russia does export very widely um, to a lot of other countries. In fact, before this war broke out, Russia provided, you know, depending on what year you look at, somewhere between 8 and 12% of all world oil supplies. So this is, this is a huge amount of oil that comes onto the global market from Russia. Um, and what will basically happen because of the nature of the global oil market is when Europe stops taking cargoes from Russia, um, those cargoes will go somewhere else. You know, you already noted that the Indians are buying up a lot of Russian oil and they're getting it at a slight discount over, you know, what would be paid for other oil because there is that political risk associated in doing so. Um, but the appetite for oil globally is pretty high. And so Russia will almost certainly find other buyers um, and it doesn't need to shift a significant amount of infrastructure to do so. So this is why, um, you know, in many ways, the European job of transitioning away from Russian oil is made easier by the structure of the international oil market, you know, that it mostly comes on boats, that boats can sail other places. Um, but that also makes it easier for Russia to find new customers as well. The gas question is a very different one because the gas mostly comes through pipelines. It doesn't mostly come on ships. It's much harder to substitute. It's a much bigger part of Europe's energy mix. And that's why, you know, European states are talking about transitioning off of Russian energy, but they're talking about a time frame of probably two to five years, probably at the upper end of that range. Um, and it will be difficult to do because they'll need to build new infrastructure, new LNG terminals, for example. Um, and again, on the Russian side, it will also be difficult to transition to find new customers. If that happens, the Russians will need to think about building infrastructure um, in order to sell that gas to Asia instead. Um, so what we're really seeing now is, you know, Europe is taking the steps that it can to stop buying Russian oil, but it is in many ways a symbolic choice. Um, and over the longer term, perhaps we will see Russia actually suffering more from those choices. And in terms of OPEC+, Plus, Ambassador Burns, the head of the CIA, is meeting uh, with Mohammed bin Salman, who's been very rude, shall we say, putting it mildly, not taking calls from Biden. Same with MBZ in, in the Emirates. People I've talked to that have been visiting the Gulf recently say that uh, the word is that MBS and MBZ are trying to finance Trump's comeback, and they certainly have plenty of, um, of money to do that. So what kind of an ally is that, and are there questions being asked seriously about what can be done, or do you think uh, Burns is in Saudi Arabia essentially to cave in, because Biden obviously decided that uh, MBS was a pariah having murdered and dismembered the Washington Post reporter. Yeah, I'm a little concerned about the Biden administration's approach to Saudi Arabia. Um, I mean, the, the Saudis have been bad allies for for a long time. I mean, even during the Cold War, they they never adjusted production to really help the U.S. in in crises. That's that's kind of a myth that they ever actually did that. Um, but certainly, the position that both Saudi Arabia and the UAE have taken on on the Russian war in Ukraine is is more concerning than that sort of simple commercial interest. Um, and what we've seen is them take a very neutral 
line, um, in many cases refusing to even condemn Russia at some of these UN votes. Um, and so very much trying to walk a middle path that maintains their ties with Russia, that maintains their growing ties with China. Um, and while the US no longer needs these states um, to sort of supply our own energy security, thanks to, to the growth in, in domestic production, um, I do think this is an important shift in global power politics. If we are seeing those states pull away from the US. And, and my concern is that Biden um, and the Biden administration is perhaps trying to, to rein the Saudis and the Emiratis back in by offering them concessions. Um, I'm not really sure what it is that we're going to get for that, because because where the Saudis and the Emiratis are voting right now is with their commercial interests. It's with China who's buying their oil. It's with Russia who's helping them manage global oil markets. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes then, Emma, let's turn to your article at Bloomberg, NATO should think twice before accepting Finland and Sweden. My understanding, as you point out in your article, is that Finland's got a pretty robust army for Europe. It's a fact uh, it has the continent's largest artillery force, which, of course, the Ukrainians are at a deficit there because Russia is using its superior uh, numbers of artillery to pound them in the east. But Sweden, I suppose, would give Finland strategic depth, but the island of Gotland, is, is, isn't that key? Isn't that a demilitarized island, which then could be militarized and become kind of crucial to uh, controlling the Baltic? Both Finland and Sweden bring some positives to the table when it comes to, to NATO enlargement. Um, you know, unlike uh, previous rounds of NATO enlargement, particularly Finland has, as you know, a fairly robust military, right? Because they do provide for their own defense and have done so since World War II. Um, the Swedes, that's less the case. But again, they maintained a very robust military during the Cold War. They could build that up again. Um, and as you know, there's a few territorial issues at play. Gotland Island um, would actually be beneficial. I've, I've seen war games in which, you know, control of Gotland Island is very helpful for defense of the Baltics that are already in NATO, for example. Um, but I do think we need to bear in mind that those positives come with some negatives. Um, and in the case of Finland, for example, that's an 800-mile border with Russia, um, you know, less than a couple of hours' drive from the Russian um, city of St. Petersburg. Um, in the case of Sweden, you know, that's that falling defense spending that we've seen since the 1990s. Um, and so, you know, again, these states, I think lots of the debates about NATO expansion in recent years have focused on Ukraine, on Georgia, um, on states that just really do not meet the criteria for membership. Finland and Sweden are not that those cases, right? They, they are very much, they could be an asset to the alliance. Um, but we do need to think carefully about those downsides during the accession process rather than simply waiting until Finland and Sweden are admitted and dealing with them later. And just in the last minute, do you think that Turkey's being a spoiler here is, is going to, are they going to prevail? <laughs> I, you know, I think the Turks are probably looking for political concessions from other NATO member states. Um, but it's, it's a reminder of the fact that NATO is an extremely large, sprawling military alliance. If Finland and Sweden get in, there will be 32 states that are members of NATO. Um, and those states don't always share all their foreign policy and defense objectives. And, you know, this is what we're seeing now. The Turks want, uh, you know, to push back on Finland and Sweden because those countries support Kurdish causes. Um, and so, again, I think we should be mindful of the fact that while admitting these states might bring some benefits, um, 
expanding NATO even further will only add to the alliance's inability to decide on sort of one strategic approach to the world. Well, Emma Ashford, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Emma Ashford, who's a resident senior fellow with the New America Engagement Initiative in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point with expertise in the politics of the Middle East, Russia, Europe. Her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. And she's the author of the forthcoming book, Oil, the State, and War, the Foreign Policies of Petrostates. And she has an op-ed at Bloomberg, NATO should think twice before accepting Finland and Sweden. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half